0: And welcome to today's episode on Researcher Revealed. For everybody who's just joining us or missed episode one, I'm Rosalyn Austin and I'm a nurse researcher and today I have joining me, Faye. Before we get into that, just a little reminder what researcher, the Researcher Revealed podcast is all about. This podcast, we are trying to go behind the scenes and to reveal the research behind all of those papers that you should be reading. So, with that said, I'd like to introduce you to Faye Forsyth. Faye, who are you and why have you joined us?
1: Thanks, Rosalind. Well, I'm Faye, as Rosalind said, and I am a PhD student in the University of Cambridge. I sit within the Clinical Nursing Research Group and I do research into heart failure with preserved ejection fraction.
0: Oh, thank you. Um, perfect. Excellent. Right. Now, just for a little fun, we didn't do this with Sandra. She got off the hook. So we're going to have to have her back there. Um, We're going to do a quick little rapid fire question round. So it's 11 questions. First thing that pops into your mind when I ask the question, are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. Tea or coffee? Coffee. When you're writing, music or silence? Silence. What time of day are you most productive? 6.30 (laughs) (laughs) a.m. Are you a Windows or Mac? Windows. Okay. If you plan or journal, do you go digital or paper?
1: I plan lists on paper. Okay. Where do you work, home or office?
0: At my kitchen table with my cat. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that sounds lovely. Uh, your favorite referencing manager program? Oh, EndNote. Ah, I'm an EndNote girl too. Favorite data visualization tool?
1: Um, RStudio. Ooh,
0: fancy. It's the only one I know. It's my only one. <laughs> <laughs> favorite snack at a desk? Ooh,
1: oatcakes. cakes. Oak
0: cakes, okay. I'm Scottish. Um, ah fair enough fair enough um and what are you reading right now
1: oh um i'm reading a book by um the guy that wrote captain corelli's mandolin i'm forgetting his name um it's called the the war of nelly's under regions
0: <laughs> <laughs> interesting interesting right and last question on our rapid fire round is a researcher who you admire.
1: Oh. I'm gonna say Christy. Professor
0: Christy Deathon is my supervisor.
1: Um, and the most highly cited nurse researcher in the UK. So
0: I think that's a very good person to admire. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you for that. Okay, Faye. Let's um get right into it. So you're a nurse, you're currently doing your PhD. Why? Okay. Um
1: so I entered my PhD journey through research nursing, as I think we have been have in common. So I'd been a clinical nurse working in general medicine for a number of years. Um, and I always enjoyed it, but I I always had always aspired to to move into research right from when I started my training. Um and I managed to get myself an early clinical career fellowship from something called NHS Education for Scotland. And they'd funded my <laughs> masters straight okay. off the off the back of finishing my undergraduate. So I'd done that at the same time as gaining my clinical experience at the It was offered part time. And so uh, I was working clinical shifts and I was doing my my master's and that gave me my first sort of insight into research. It was a master's in research I did at University of Edinburgh. Um, And then I decided that that wasn't enough and I wasn't sort of getting to grips with marrying a clinical job and and doing sort of research so I moved into I moved to London and I got my first clinical research nurse post um, and that's that's for me is when the, I really start to learn about research on the the sort of the day-to-day of running a research study and my first job was in a gene therapy study in cystic fibrosis so oh, it was wow. really sort of cutting edge totally um, hardcore I would say research um, giving patients with cystic fibrosis a non-mutated version of their of the CFTR gene which is where, where the, the mutation is um, it was encased in a lipid and they inhaled it and then the idea would be that it's the this the cells in their um respiratory tract take in the new gene and start making copies of that. So, um, because it was a, a inside fat in and a vi- and a viral vector. So um and so okay. it was very, very sort of it was very cool. I really enjoyed that. I learned a lot, especially about regulations um around trials because it was a gene therapy study. Um but it was quite a short jo- a short job. Um, I, they sadly didn't have their funding renewed to the same extent. So then I I moved to a new another post, and this was in genetics of obesity, and that was at Cambridge. And that's how I've come to be in Cambridge, and I've done a variety of other clinical research nurse jobs since then, until my most recent post, which was about 2018, when I started to work with Christy as her Clinical research nurse on um, the optimized HEF-PEF study, which was looking at diagnosis of heart failure preserved ejection fraction in patients living in the community and following them up for a period of one year and looking at a number of um, parameters just to characterise them um, and see how well they they managed over a period of one year in terms of activity and hard outcomes like hospitalisation and. Mortality unfortunately, um and from the back of that, um, having a great mentor who allows you to do more than you often are allowed to do as a clinical research nurse um so I was allowed to write the protocol paper um I was oh. allowed to write some to, to the main publications um I got to go to workshops that they were holding on um, with the the other group in Manchester that they were doing their qualitative part of the study. So I got to learn lots and lots of different techniques and from there I decided, yes, I'd like to do my own research now and I'd like to do it in HFPEF. And here I am.
0: Fascinating. Oh my goodness, what a journey. I I love hearing how people get into research because I think everybody has a bit of a unique difference. Just to slow things down, because some people coming to this might not understand some of the things that we were talking about. So one, what is a research nurse? So for me, a research nurse is
1: somebody who is specialising in the delivery of clinical research, usually in a clinical setting like the NHS. So generally, they'd be responsible for reading research Um, protocols and then operationalising any of the clinical components within that protocol, namely about giving treatment or um, assessing people at the beginning, giving some form of treatment and then assessing them again at the end. And so you get to learn lots of different types of clinical assessments, develop loads of different um, laboratory skills that um that your bedside nurse wouldn't wouldn't um learn. So you know how to work a centrifuge and you can pipette your samples like a pro. <laughs> um, so that that that's that was my experience of being a clinical research nurse. Um, in the sort of the the standard jobs that I'd done up until when I joined Christie's group, and that was when working with a nurse who um was also keen to promote nurses become researchers so got to cross the line a little bit and 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 step over into doing um some of the analysis parts um mm-hmm. and that's how I progressed to become PhD student
0: so, I would agree with you there, in that um, for anybody who doesn't know, I was a research nurse before becoming a PhD. And I would say the biggest difference from listening to your experience learning about research and mine is those opportunities that Christy gave you to start working as a uh, researcher rather than a research nurse. Um, where in some of the work that I did, even though I was doing some of those activities, it just kind of got magically absorbed so i didn't get the credit i didn't get the ability to co-write on papers and, and things like that so it's really interesting the difference to me that having a nurse leading your research group how that um resulted in a different experience even even as a research nurse so somebody who typically just whatnot um so another word that you use that I found quite interesting in talking about research nurses, because I agree with this as well, is that you're allowed. Yes. <laughs> Tell me a bit more about what you mean, both from the point of view of possibly like Something that pops to head for me into my head straight away is we are allowed as research nurses, given we follow the protocol and we've got the right oversight, to give unlicensed drugs, for example. So, tell me about for you what that uh, freedom, how that translated both into your clinical practice and the things that you did with patients, but also some of those things that were behind the scenes that were different for you.
1: So in terms of in terms of you mean ward based clinical work and clinical research nursing work being allowed to do. <laughs> well, uh, when I was learning the ropes, I, I strictly followed a protocol um, and I <laughs> took great, great pleasure, actually, in creating lots of different documents to try and make sure that that was what was being done i don't know the last time you read a, a big massive protocol for some un, unlicensed therapy but they're not very accessible so no. um i i often spent quite a lot of time translating them to be um a, a document that a nurse could read and access and and use as a template to collect to collect the data that was required and I think that was the start for me of 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 maybe going beyond um some of the things that were absolutely necessary of being a clinical research nurse but you're right I I, I experienced similar barriers I had aspirations Throughout all of my clinical jobs um to, to do more than i was was doing to be um included uh, as part as an equal member of the party in the clinical research game and beyond some papers beyond um generally speaking, my experience has been that people are very generous and if you have contributed in the shape of being a nurse a research nurse then f- frequently if you're not on the paper as a, a contributor, then you're at least acknowledged in mm-hmm. in uh, at the end of a paper, just saying, yeah. you know, the delivery was dependent upon yeah. the, the your your presence and your yeah. um ability with patients to to deliver the protocol. But yes, it's starting to reach beyond that. Um, and it takes a little bit, I think, of experience of knowing STEM um and then you know, and then getting a, in a group where people are are willing to give you the chance to do it so in some of my other posts prior to the optimized HEFPEF PEF study um i i got to do loads of things that i i hadn't previously done in terms of meeting people um for a, a big horizon 2020 eu grant i got to go to a lot of meetings and Uh, and see how all of these things are reported Um, and I I got to contribute to the the periodic reporting for all of those grants but that doesn't translate to a publication that's to satisfy the criteria of the grant but it was a lot of writing Mm. and I think it was sort of confirmed to me that yeah I I think I had the capability Um, I just needed to go and find the group where they would um I would I wouldn't be one of very many many people who also had those skills um okay. so when I joined Christy it was just me and Christy So okay. um so it was more of a team and we were I came on the grant very early I came on the project very early so it was opportunity to shape and we we did talk a lot about outcomes and then we would we did submit a few amendments to measure things that we thought were interesting as they came up, okay. um, and I, I, yeah. So I'm not sure I've answered your question, but
0: well, <laughs> no, uh, I think you have. So what I was trying to to pick at a little bit because in you describing your journey to us, um, it was very clear the training that you followed so you did the master's and you did some research delivery specific training and then you did more training once you started on the study around how to conduct studies and specific procedures but I think what I'm trying to um understand is what what was you what was the drive how come you were so determined to follow this research pathway because if I, i know you and you hinted at it in your introduction is that you actually have multiple different pathologies in which you've contributed to research protocols development or publications and i'd say that's a fairly unique thing um especially at an earlier stage as a nurse researcher so what what is it that makes it for you, research is the thing. And it doesn't matter whether it's cystic fibrosis, whether it's HFPEF, whether it's brain injury, what is it about research that is like, that's what I want to spend my life doing? Mm.
1: Yeah, you're right. So it started cystic fibrosis, and then it was obesity, and then it was traumatic brain injury, and now it's heart failure. But with all conditions, it's the same you come across the same problems people don't get access to the care that they require the care that they receive is not optimized and there's lots of barriers to treatment and every disease is complex and all patients are complex and for me it's always just about there's a great a great problem there that we we all should be contributing towards um, resolving um, and all of the skills are transferable. So um, all of the research skills um, it can it can transfer to e- any of the diseases. And I, I'm, I'm as much as I would like to have been a specialist in one in one body system. And I think it, yes, it, it it does have a lot of value in how you grow your research. But um, everything I've learned along the way has been highly valuable for now being a phd student and um hopefully i'll be able to continue i i i will i won't limit myself i won't just do research in health paths because i think this the yeah they i i feel the same things i i see the same problems across loads of the chronic diseases yeah. um and they say that Traumatic brain injury is the most complex disease in the most complex organ. But I say, no, that's just, it's the same for all diseases and all organs. They're all complex. Um, and we can all learn from the other specialties. I have used so much of my learning from traumatic brain injury and the direction they were taking their research in, um, coming to to heart failure, and they were, in my view, a bit ahead of the curve when it came to personalised medicine and having to really phenotype patients, um, because in traumatic brain injury, they they say they only understand thirty percent of the inter individual variability and in outcome. So what is what's the other seventy percent? We don't know. It, it's about the person, um, and that's mm. the case for for majority of diseases. People respond differently to therapies to to care. So, um, yeah, I think. I would like to continue be research in herpes because I really feel like it's got a very very significant need in the UK. But mm. um, I think learning from other specialties is is very important.
0: No, I I couldn't agree with you more. And similarly, don't tell people I have got a varied background <laughs> myself <laughs> in research. In fact, my master's degree I did it before I was even a nurse. I did things all messed up and my master's degree is in neuroscience and functional electrical stimulation. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> so you're not alone. Okay very very interesting. Okay so for you then it is very much about the reason you love research is it's that problem solving it's that um, trying to apply techniques and um methods around unlocking a complex problem in a pathology where there are no answers
1: yeah about it's about the unknown and uh, as much as i loved clinical work um i knew every day is different there still is i think a plateau in in what you what you do see i mean my eyes were Opened extremely widely you doing nursing in glasgow um but <laughs> in one of the most um, deprived areas mm. but i I still think there there comes to a point where um not that you've seen it, all you're going to see, but you've probably got to grips with with what. With your patient group and with the delivery of care in that specialty and even general medicine with all the the madness that that can be there's still um, a lot of system system based care you know you, you still do the same things and i yeah. think it's nice to have a bit of freedom in your research to say actually you know this we don't know about this um i think my only um Drawback would be is um, I I don't feel like I get to contribute enough to the the nursing the nursing agenda in terms of patient care and and looking okay, at yeah. because I think that I researched the condition pef I'm not researching nursing as a profession and it's something I would like to maybe um work towards at some point but it's, it's finding the a link to what you're doing you know I I don't just throw it out and decide oh I'm going to go that's what I'm going to do today. Everything has always linked together. Um for yeah. me anyway, in my head. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> There's been logic <laughs> between so, uh, I'm gonna ask you to expand a little bit about that more. So when you say you're researching the condition and not the nursing care, like oh, I've just won the lottery i have a million pounds i'm only going to give it to nurse research explain it to like what would your ideal project look like that does combine that sort of dream just to kind of help me see what you're talking about
1: yeah, well, I I think a lot of what we do in in routine clinical practice is not underpinned by a strong evidence base, and, and I was looking back recently at the the Marston Handbook, um, and reading through that, um, I rec- I'd recommended it to somebody as uh, a an accessible handbook to, um, uh, to learning a little bit about some clinical procedures and clinical yeah. practice, and when I was reading them, and I was reminded about how little of it is underpinned by any, any robust evidence. And that's not to say that they're, they're, they're not done well. It's been, it's been learned through a process of years um, of how these procedures should be, should be operated. But it, it, it still surprises me um, that there's so many things out there that we just do in nursing and take for granted as being evidence-based when actually possibly it isn't necessarily as robust as you might might think it is i'm trying to think of an example Oh,
0: so um, while you think um that actually twigged something in my crazy little head is i think it was about a year ago i'll have to look online to see if i can find because it was a recorded talk i was at a webinar as you are doing a phd and it was a eminent nurse researcher from america and she said this phrase and I I captured it, like I screen recorded it because I thought it was so powerful. She said, the thing about nursing and nursing care is that nurses know what works, but they don't have the evidence for it. And she actually was calling for nurses to become researchers so that we are start to a- be able to inform and develop research that turns that, I hate the saying, but that gut feeling or that like warm hands approach um, and actually turn that into science and be able to look at it. Because it's something like I know I felt for a long time is that as a clinical nurse with more experience we always blame our guts for all that patient's doing poorly but it's more than that and there is and so I think like her call for nurses to do research about nursing I think is that what you're kind of talking about?
1: Yeah I think that is that's what I'm trying to get at I think because a lot of I th- the things that I write about um, is about a system of care or it's um, it's about patient experiences and I was I, less so about specific nursing procedures that would um, that you're doing on a day to day basis. And it's just something that I think I would like to maybe head into in the future. And it's something I think we could do more of as a profession. Um I I did I do recall now with um, a lecturer when I was um doing my masters in Edinburgh and she'd been a urology nurse and they said okay. they had a policy that was um catheters could had to be had to be removed at lunchtime and she and she her some some such random statement was in their, their local SOP. And yeah. she, for for the life of her she could find no rationale for this. In fact it seemed absolutely obscure. Um and, and so it, she did a small study, I think, to try and um, establish when is the best time to remove a castor, you know. Is it the afternoon? Is it the morning? Is it the evening? And, it's, it, you know, well, I think her her output was that it should be morning or afternoon so that you've got a period of observation of the, of the patient. But it's just that these types of things have come into yes. our practice. And yes. if you're actually to look back and work out where they've come from, then it would just be someone who's written it at some point without any robust rationale for it.
0: Oh, I, I totally agree. And I think it's one of the things that the more I learned about research and not just as a, like, because when you're doing your nursing training, they're like, oh, yeah, evidence-based research. That's how you practice evidence-based this or that. But uh, when I was doing my PhD and you are encouraged and given the freedom to actually properly delve into research that you do start to discover exactly what you're saying is there's very little and the research that might be there you know could be from 1960 when like the catheters are not the same sort of tech that we have now or you know there's so many variables and I think um, I had a meeting with uh, my chief nurse like ages ago at the hospital that I work at and she said this and I've stolen it from her because I think it's brilliant so I think the role for Nurses and research is to convert from doing evidence based practice because do we actually have the evidence? But that's another question for another podcast. Um, to actually providing care that informs the evidence, yeah, and just you know, flipping it on its head and saying. OK, how are we going to how do we know and is it possible to measure capture that this thing we do as nurses that, you know, I'll, I'll keep picking on it because it's an easy thing to pick on that gut feeling. And, you know, we all have those we've all had those calls in the middle of the night and we're like, doctor, we need you to come now. And they're like, well, what's the patient's observations? And you're like, well, they're normal. And they're like, well, I'm not coming. And you're like, no, no, come now. Mm. And, you know, how how can we unpick that? How can we start informing that so that it's not just this um, magical entity that nursing has, that it actually is like we can say, oh, it's because of this factor. Um, excellent. OK, that's really, really helpful. The other thing before uh, we wrap things up today is tell us about your eh day okay so what is the research that you're doing and um aside from your training journey um that has got you exposed to Christie and that project itself what led you to this research question okay so my my question came
1: off the back of working with our patients um in Christie's study so i was seeing them on the um running the, the research clinic they were, we were doing a diagnostic workup and they were getting their echo and then they were it was being reviewed by a, a clinician, a heart failure specialist and um on that basis we gave them a diagnosis or and um, followed them up. Um, so I was seeing the patients routinely and it was just something anecdotal, I suppose, that a lot of them said to me, it's like I uh, I would like to be um I would like to be more active. I'd like to be able to do more for myself, but I just don't know um what that what that should be. And it's one of the problems in hep pef is diagnosis is not often communicated um and um it, when it is, um sometimes it's coupled with the incorrect messaging. Um and so people do are confused. Um mm-hmm. and so that it, that's when I started um putting trying to put in some competitive applications Um, and that was the basis of of my project was going to be these work for work packages that was looking at patient experience looking at what the evidence for diet was looking at what the evidence for exercise was um um, so specifically diet and hefpef but the evidence for exercise in the multimorbid older adult but my feeling was from seeing these patients was that they were quite significantly physically impaired and routine cardiac rehabilitation or other types of services along those lines that i'd observed would not probably be suitable for them and when i did look at some of the the guidance um out there then it it does and some of the audits that have done they do they they can be excluded not not all services but sometimes patients who are really quite physically physically functionally impaired do get um, excluded from these types of um, services and HEFPEF specifically so I I wanted to do to do this research and and culminate in a sort of um a feasibility study with testing some sort of new multimodal intervention. So, so far in, on my year three of five years, um, I have done a an qualitative analysis of patient experiences, confirming a lot of the things that I have just said, that patients often feel like they 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 don't know about their diagnosis when they do know about their diagnosis what they have been told it would not be um in line with a sort of current evidence in terms of the okay. severity of the condition and what they can do about it um and then these factors together with their other chronic conditions make it very difficult for them to to manage and for a lot of the patients for me, it felt like they entered a spiral of decline whereby they were um, they were getting breathless. They were not then able to mobilize. And then the world gets tinier and tinier and tinier until it's, they've lost a lot of their sense of self and or things that they used to get enjoyment from. Um, so that's your first work package. So that was work
0: package one. And that's describing the experiences of people who have heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. Just for everybody who doesn't know what HFPEP is. (laughs) Yeah. I can't remember if we said that or not. So I was like, you better (laughs) take that in. Yeah. Um, So that piece of work that's completed. And are you doing your PhD by publication or traditional? And can people read about that piece of work?
1: Yes, you can read that piece of work and I can send you the um, PubMed ID. Um Perfect. <laughs> But um, no, Cambridge don't do PhD by publication, so I will publish all of my chapters, but I still have to write a traditional thesis. Um, and so my diet work, the Diet Systematic Review, um, I have published that too. Um, okay. There's been two publications, one that looked at the types of things that were uh, it, you clap, but it's because I'm so verbose I can't fit it into one paper one paper <laughs> <laughs> uh, it reflects a lack of concise writing ability so um, <laughs> um one paper describes what has been tested, so they um <laughs> it, it was. 25 studies, I think, but each one was quite different in their approach. So I I couldn't really find a way of nicely combining them into a logical. Each one has something quite different about what they were doing. So there was lots of there's 12 different types of dietary interventions I could find in HEPF. Notable absences was nobody has actually tested a, a standard Mediterranean diet to see if it affects outcome. We all assume that it's effective because we have a, a lot of epidemiological data that, that shows that um, people who follow Mediterranean diet usually have better cardiovascular outcomes, but not no one has specifically tested that. That um,
0: is fascinating. Yeah.
1: There was growing there's a growing body of evidence about weight loss and HEFPEF and I think there's been a recent study, um STEP HEFPEF, which has confirmed that, giving the um a anti-obesity drug alongside an exercise routine. Um, so that was the first paper, and the second paper was the meta-analysis looking at the actual outcomes from that. And overall, everything was quite, all the studies were quite small, so I was very cautious about my approach and I used a grade system to, um, to, and I tested quite a lot of the um, the outcomes, although they might have been statistically significant, I was very cautious to make sure that that translated to clinical benefits, and oftentimes it did not. And that's the beauty of using the GRADE system, because it encourages you to do that. You know, that might look statistically significant and it might it might look good, but actually when you put that into, into a clinical context, does it? Does it actually have that um, that much of a difference for somebody? So there was a few things. So high, high protein diet and um, a low fat diet did seem to improve some of the outcomes. But there also as a caveat, oftentimes these are highly specialised groups, highly specific groups mm-hmm. of patients. So. Um, it was very difficult to draw broad conclusions to say this is what we could recommend and hef-pef. Yeah. and my exercise review. Um, so that will be three papers. Again, because I struggle <laughs> I with his ability to keep keep it small. Um, <laughs> so the first paper.
0: <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm not laughing at you, Faith, but I have the same problem. So I'm I actually I understand the issue. <laughs> I, I'm.
1: I'm very careful in that um... Each one has is got it's got a specific message, uh, and I, yes. I I I justified it to myself. But <laughs> the first people will say it's talking about these aren't published yet, but I hope that they will be soon. Um, mm-hmm. I looked at the um, the extent of intervention development that had been undertaken by exercise interventions in multi older adults. And it's a big review. It was fifty one thousand abstracts that we reviewed and include <laughs> whoa, 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 and um there was a lot of four thousand that you included yes. um that abstracts that that was the return that okay, you yeah. viewed okay yeah, reviewed,
0: oh, for a second time yeah. it's like it's
1: 138 studies i've included in the review so it's still That's a, a still big massive. one big review so yeah the first paper i looked at um what underpinned the exercise prescription based on on their based on the descriptions in the paper you know had they done a systematic review had they you know um did they just refer, defer to guidance or had they um or was it on the basis of local practice um and unfortunately it seems like the referring uh, local practice seems to come out top. people seem to test what they're doing in their local practice rather than going to do a systematic, searching for a systematic review that might say um, this is, you know, probably what we should be testing if we're going to bother to design an intervention. And then the second paper is looked at intervention development as a whole across the stu- all the studies and their related publications, so any protocol papers. So that boosts up to 258 papers um, and that's, I looked across all the papers and all the publications to look for any evidence of undertaking um, robust um, development of their intervention according okay. to um, a framework that was published okay. in 2020. Okay. Um, and again, and sadly not very well performed. Um, partly, I think one of the reasons is people don't want to publish that type of research, but I, I now there is evidence it's it's not development papers are hard to write you know Mm that there it's hard to draw lots of diverse bits of information together and put it in a format that would be acceptable to a journal um so that that's part that's part explains part of the of the information of of the results but i think a large part is we do have a problem in research we like to go from idea to testing and we don't like to do anything in between um and i think uh, well it's problematic and it was almost what I was going to do <laughs> until I did the reviews so I'd come up with my idea and I wanted to test it but thankfully in the intervening period I got some good advice to say well maybe you should do some systematic reviews um to work out <laughs> what is already out there yeah. um and I, I do think that performing a good um search of the literature before you do anything it should be mandatory because i think the majority of the st- lots of the studies sorry, in my review would not have progressed um, if they had done a robust systematic review um and so and then last the last part will test the different combinations of exercises that okay. different um, interventions have used to see if it, it leads to any greater or lesser effect
0: okay.
1: um, on quality of life, on a functional outcome, okay. and maybe an extra uh, an activity level outcome. Although there's okay. not much data there. I,
0: I love it. It sounds fascinating. Um, the amount of information that you've packed into there is massive, (laughs) Um, both in, like, you describing your work as well as the amount of work that you're putting into your PhD. And I I can't wait to read these papers as well as find out what you find out because in my PhD, which, as you know, um, was related to heart failure, it was one of the things that um, really uh, put a fuel fire in my belly. About more research is so many times and it goes back to what you said as well about wanting to do more research and what it is about it is that my patients and participants just kept saying to me over and over again well i I would like to exercise but i don't know how or the doctor tells me to go for a walk but on tuesday i do it and i'm fine and on wednesday i do it and i'm not fine and i am not able to tell whether or not not doing it is a bad sign or a good sign because especially in in heart failure but in other diseases as well their symptoms are so non-specific and like how do you tell if you're breathless going for a walk on tuesday because well you're walking uphill and it's hard work versus on wednesday you're still walking up the same hill, but now you're a bit more breathless, but you can't really remember what Monday looked like, and actually, your breathlessness now on Wednesday is because you're decompensating, and it's you know there's it's I agree with you there's so little information around not just heart failure but lots of chronic illnesses and how we could better manage them and it's just like i, I don't know, it's like my own little personal pet peeve it's like oh yeah that's part of that's part of their self care they'll sort it out.
1: Yeah, and there is a lot of patients. Yes, and I do think that there's a lot to learn from how patients articulate these experiences and whether or not we can, like you said, unpick those to help give generate this information to help Equip them better to to work out. Yes, and I think that that's also coupled in with this slow deterioration that people experience as well, um, alongside the the processes of aging and they they lose their physiological reserve, um, that then makes it even more complicated to work out. You know what what is a normal thing for me to be experiencing given my burden of conditions and the symptoms i could expect to experience, and um when should I are worry and I think patients are very, very good at it, but also very very anxious not to be a burden, yeah and I think I... that complicates it significantly and not just to cl- not to clinic- just to clinical services but their family members and friends who they might have to rely on to to get them up to hospital and yeah. I think yes, we could do some more research that really. Unpacks that and helps us um it's, a, it's about the way it's explained, i think by the patient, and we, there maybe is patterns that we could we could identify you know this maybe feels like this um
0: yeah well, i I totally agree, and I think it's not just in how patients communicate it, but I think it's also sometimes in how well-meaning clinicians, whether they are nurses or doctors, communicate things. So one of my participants, for example, was talking to me about her experience and she was discharged from hospital and part of her discharge instructions was like, Well if you have chest pain, it's a call. She now goes home and she's like, Well what do you mean chest pain? What kind of chest pain? My chest hurts every day. I'm 96. Everything hurts every day. What does bad chest pain look like? Is it sharp? Is it does it not go away? And like You know, As a clinician, and I've caught myself doing this, I know what I mean when I say chest pain. And I just make that assumption that because I say it, everybody else knows it. But for some individuals, you know, what if they have, especially with these complex chronic illnesses, what if they also have some sort of lung disease that means that they do have chest pain every day? We don't actually want them calling us. Every day. So, what for that person does bad look like? Anyway, I've just seen the time. Yes. Picture <laughs> <laughs> project. Um, <laughs> just for everybody who knows, we said before we started recording that we didn't think we'd fill an hour, but <laughs> yes. All right. <laughs> <Sorry. Once laughs> I feel on like one. we've only scratched the surface. So, for everybody out there listening. If there are things in our conversation, words that didn't make sense around research um, delivery or doing a PhD or things like that, do feel free, drop it in the comments on the YouTube or on the um, podcast. We will get back to those questions and try and explain or give you resources if you need that bit um, explaining or, or you have questions around that. Secondly, in the description of the YouTube video, as well as the audio podcast that will be coming out um, in the description, I'll also give you how you can track the lovely Fay down. <laughs> mm-hmm all of her contacts on social as well as um, she's very kindly provided a really good list of all of the some of the publications that she's put out recently and that too will probably actually help um, anybody who is curious about phase work to unpick it and understand it a little bit more
1: any last words Faye? Oh, it's been a pleasure thanks roslyn
0: <laughs> oh i've i've thoroughly enjoyed having you on and getting to understand more what is driving um your incredible and admirable passion around research as a nurse so thank you very much for coming on to our episode two of our my new podcast researcher revealed thank you and we will be in touch soon don't go away up next, we have the top three takeaways from this week's podcast by Dr. Rosalyn Austin. Wow, there was so much in that. I knew Faye would be brilliant. Um, I have talked with her and worked with her previously, and I knew that she'd have so much to pack into it. Um uh, for me, top three takeaways from today's podcast with the lovely Faye Forsyth. Um one early exposure to research. So it's not the first time I've heard this in talking to other people in that um, as nurses and AHPs and clinicians, the more that you talk to people who get into research, they say again and again and again that it's usually some form of early exposure to research to know that research is a possibility and that it is something that that you can do as a career so for faye it was her master's work and then moving on to being a research nurse for me similar it was masters then nursing then research nursing now my phd Um, but early exposure to research equals a higher probability of becoming a researcher so that's number one number two takeaway is that difference what is the difference between a research nurse and a nurse researcher, and this is a debate that has been going on for ages. Rather than getting into it now, um, I will put in the description a few publications and papers that go into that a little bit. But I think that's really important. Thing is that this podcast is specifically much more focused on understanding what researchers are, rather than those individuals who are delivering research within the hospital settings. And Fay had a really good definition of that, so re-listen to it again third and final takeaway from today is her passion about why she loves research. And I thought it was really, really um, important to highlight that is that for her, research gives her the ability to answer questions that aren't answered yet and specifically it gives you the ability to focus in on patients that need the research as a nurse that you know them because they're the ones who always get excluded so whether that's people with dementia whether that's people who are too frail for exercise studies but those people who often need care the most are are often left out of research so to have a passion and to able to complete the training so that you're able as a nurse researcher to create research for the individuals so that we can answer those questions so that our health care can become more accessible treatments get optimized there's less barriers even for those incredibly complex patients so top three takeaways one learn about research early Increases your chances of becoming a researcher. One, the differences between a researcher, a nurse researcher, and a research nurse. And three, that research is a way to be able to improve knowledge, especially in those underserved populations. Thanks for listening. Don't forget, like, comment, and subscribe on YouTube as well as on ACAST or whatever podcasting platform you've downloaded this onto. And I look forward to seeing you again soon. Thanks for tuning in. Bye.